So as I as I um, as I said the other day, can't even remember exactly when it was. Um, the Buddha said that this practice is about about understanding dukkha and knowing the ending of dukkha. And so this evening, I'd like to I'd like to speak a little bit more about that. I'd like to explore what that means, how it comes about, how we can kind of put it in in some some sort of context, give some meaning to it. And um, it's not, <laughs> again, as I said the other, the other evening, it's, it, it's hard to know where to start. There's so many possible ways of, of entering into this. And, um, and, and some of what I'm going to talk about, um, even the, the Buddha said, this is difficult to understand. Actually, he said, it's hard <laughs> to understand. Um, he said, it's subtle, and it's not to be understood by thought. Okay, this is, the Buddha is recorded as having said that. So I think that gives a, a sense of the difficulty, not just of understanding it, but of actually speaking about it. And so if, um, if as I'm speaking, if there's things, if there's pieces of it that you just don't get at all, just what's that all about? Just set it aside, okay? And, and, and try not to get caught up in trying to understand it by thinking about it. Better to just listen and, and see what kind of gets absorbed. <coughs> so dukkha and the ending of dukkha. So as I, as I mentioned um, earlier in the retreat, the Buddha said that um, dukkha is not getting what we want. Dukkha is getting what we don't want. And dukkha is separation from what we love or who we love. And I think... Um, if not in our actual daily lives outside of retreat, then likely during the retreat, we've seen the dukkha of not getting what we want and getting what we don't want. So all these unpleasant sensations and experiences that come to us, the, the exhaustion and the, and the aching that come with the, the qigong that we're not used to doing, um, these things that we, we don't want and don't like, and yet here they are. And we, we resist them. We struggle with them. We don't, we don't want them. And then not getting what we want. I want more concentration, better concentration. I want more quiet mind. I want... Um, more um, tea breaks, <laughs> I want um, whatever it is. And we're just not getting them. <laughs> just not getting them. So we can see these aspects. And, and, and I would guess that most of us have probably at some point in our life experienced the dukkha of loss of something or someone who we love. And so, so we're familiar. We're, we're quite familiar with these, with these, um, these aspects of the definition. Uh, 
the Buddha, the Buddha went on in his definition, and he made a, a very profound statement. And, and this is, a, this is a, one of the pieces that's subtle and hard to understand and can't be understood with thought. And he said that, he, he listed these, and he listed other examples or other aspects of dukkha as well. He said, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha. Death is dukkha. And then he, um, he added a statement at the end, this whole list of, of dukkhas, and then he, he added this statement. He said, in summary, dukkha is the five aggregates, these five aggregates fueled by clinging. And I'll, I'll come back to the aggregates, but this, this fueled by clinging. And so he's, he's pointing here to clinging, clinging to the way we want things to be, clinging to how we want things to be. He's pointing to clinging as being dukkha. Dukkha is the five aggregates fueled by clinging, and he's pointing to clinging fueling. So the clinging perpetuates the dukkha. And I think, again, I think in our experience we can see that when we're experiencing dukkha, if we kind of get caught in it and start going over and over and over in our mind and trying to figure it out and trying to fix it, trying to get rid of it, how often we notice it just makes it worse. It perpetuates it. If we can just sit back and be open with it and non-judgmental with it and really bring mindfulness to it, somehow it loses an edge and sometimes even disappears. We notice that? Okay, so the, the, the clinging, the clinging fuels and perpetuates the dukkha. So right away he's saying the more we can release, the more we can release, the less dukkha there'll be. We'll release this clinging. And, and, and the, this meditation is called insight meditation because the aim is for insight, understanding that brings about or allows the releasing. So the meditation is for this releasing which brings the ending of dukkha. And this comes through insight. And I'll come back to insight as well. So the five aggregates. What does he mean by the five aggregates? This is a kind of a model that he uses to describe this body-mind, to describe what we refer to as me and you. And he's broken down this this self, this me, into five components. And, and, and what he does with this is provide a model for us to use to examine this, this self, these five aggregates. 
And this becomes important, and in fact, this is, this, is real, this is really what the practice comes down to. When we're being with the breathing, it's not just to be with the breathing, it's not to hold the attention and just be able to stay with the breathing and just be mindful of the breathing. It's to, it's to come to understand the aggregate of body. Body is the first of these five aggregates. And the other four are different aspects of mind. And the second, the second is the Vedana, the feeling tone that discussed quite a bit this morning. And so we've got the body, we've got the feelings, and then we have um, I'm going I'm to change the order a little bit. I'm going to come back to the third one. We've got the body. We've got the feeling. Um, we've got the fourth one is mental formations. I think we all know about mental formations. Anything that forms in the mind. All the, the thoughts, the stories, the ideas, the beliefs, the concepts, the, just everything that forms in the mind comes under this heading of mental formations. So this is one of the components of who we are. Um, the fifth one is consciousness. And consciousness, um, what he means by consciousness is the, the bare knowing um, through seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, um, thinking, hearing, tasting, touching, <laughs> smelling, <laughs> Hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, thinking, touching. Six. Um, so, yeah. So it's it's the the bare fact of hearing is referred to as hearing consciousness. The bare fact of seeing, without any labels or words or concepts, just the bare fact of seeing is seeing consciousness. Um, just in the instant when a thought pops up, before it, even, before it even has content, before there's anything to grasp onto, this is mind consciousness or thinking consciousness. And similarly with smelling consciousness, with touching consciousness. So, um, so as an as an example of 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 consciousness, um, so we're we're sitting here and we're we're doing our best to pay attention to the uh, to the breathing in the belly, and the birds keep making sounds. Okay, so the bird bird um, kind of moves its beak and moves its tongue and its throat, and it sends out a sound vibration. And the sound vibration travels through the air, hits the ear, and in that moment of hitting the ear, there's hearing. And that's the consciousness. It's that the the knowing hearing. Okay, hearing. And and um, and then and then what happens is the the fifth the fifth aggregate, which is, the, uh, which is number three in the, in the usual list, is referred to as perception. So the sound 
the sound vibration hits the eardrum, the hearing arises, and perception comes in. And perception identifies the sound. It gives it a name, bird song. And it locates it. It places it out there. Okay, and this is, this is perception. So we've got the body, and of course the body, a component of the body is the sense, the sense doors. And then we have these sensory inputs, the sound vibrations, the light waves, um, the, the objects that we touch, the thoughts that pop up, and and the our our contact with the world, our contact with the world, and and the word that's used to describe it is contact, is in the coming together of the sense door, the sense object, and the consciousness. When those three occur, we have a contact. Okay, if any one of them is missing, then you know, if, if the sound vibration comes and hits the ear and there's no consciousness, then there's no, there's, no, there's no knowing that there's a sound or that there's hearing or that there's an ear, okay? If, if there's consciousness and an ear, but there's no sound vibration coming, then there's no hearing, okay? So, and, and so there's no contact. So the contact is these three things coming together. Okay, don't try to use your mind to figure this out. <laughs> and, and so in that contact, in that contact, the perception comes in and it gives it a name and it locates the object. And, um, and then the mental formations start. All the stories about, so there's, oh, there's that bird. What kind of bird is that? Oh, mm. Boy, I remember seeing one just like that, and I can't remember the name of it. And where was it that I saw that? And, and oh, and, and uh, no, I'm supposed to be with the belly. Be quiet, bird. <laughs> all, all the, all the stories and the thoughts and the ideas that develop around that contact. And of course, we've we've probably seen how easily mental formation can start around a particular contact, and then. The, the mental formations go off on tangents, and all of a sudden we're um, some other universe seeing not, a, not even a bird, uh, or hearing something not, that's not even a bird, and somehow it all seems to be linked together, and one flows into another, but the, the mental formations go, and they go on and on. Okay, so this is, this is and, and, and through all this, what's happening with all this, and, and particularly with the perception aspect, when the perception comes in, it places the thing out there. Okay, so, so perception places the bird out there, and it associates the sound with the bird, and so the bird, so the sound, is out there. 
Okay, now I kind of raised the question this morning, I think, is it actually out there or is it actually in here where the ear is and the, and the brain is that processes it? Where is the sound actually? And the Buddha's response was actually the sound is in the coming together of the two. Because of that coming together, there's a sound and there's hearing. So there's a, there's, a, there's a very intimate contact and connection in that moment of hearing the sound. And yet perception separates it out and puts it out there. And in putting it out there, if it's out there, in order to hear it, there must be someone here and it creates the perception of separation. Okay, is that, you following? Okay, so there's that perception of separation. And of course, along with all that is the feeling tone. The feeling tone is in there. And then the feeling tone comes in with its influence if the sound is pleasant, then I like it. I want to hear more. There's a clinging there. And that and that clinging, that clinging, if I and then if I don't like it, if I don't like it, it's get get it away. Get it away. It's disturbing my meditation. Okay, so, so the, the feeling brings up the clinging. And when I use the term clinging, I include aversion. It's two sides of the same coin. Okay, if I don't like something, don't want something, it's because I prefer something else. So wherever there's an aversion, there's also a desire, a wanting. They go together. And so, as the Buddha said, dukkha is the five aggregates, this self fueled by, perpetuated by clinging. The clinging that arises based on the five aggregates and the, the feeling and the, the perception and the whole package working together perpetuates the sense of me who's hearing it, or seeing it, or tasting it, or smelling it, or touching it, or thinking about it. And in perpetuating that, that sense of, of me, it's, it, it attempts through the, through the wanting and not wanting, there's an attempt to protect to preserve and to project me. So we try to protect ourselves from the things we don't like. We try to preserve the things we like. And we try to project ourselves put ourselves, 
put me out there. And the way we put me out there is, and because also because of the way perception works, the way we put me out there is actually by putting me at the center of the universe. And the world is all out there, all around me. And if I don't like it, I have to protect myself from it. And if I like it, I have to reach out and try to get it. And it's all based on this perception of separation, of separateness. And in fact, who we are, this, this perceived me, only exists because of connection. Okay, are you following or are you lost? <laughs> Okay, and this and this 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 understanding of connection and of how perception works and how the five aggregates work and how the, the clinging, this is really a key piece in the understanding that allows for the releasing. So we use the so the meditation. The meditation is is um, in the meditation. We use different techniques, different tools, different methods to examine this perceived me. And 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 in a sense, we we kind of intentionally separate me out. At least initially, we um, we take up this separate me, and okay, I'm going to pay attention to my body and have a look at my mind and my emotions. And, and we, start, we start to give attention, and it's, it's an exploration, an examination of this perceived me with the intention of coming to understand how is it actually, what is what, what's, what's true about this me? And the Buddha, the Buddha in his great wisdom recognized that if there's anything I can say that's true about this me, it has to also be true about anything. It has to be true about, to be really true, it has to apply to anyone and anything in any situation under any circumstances. And if it doesn't, then I can't say that it's the truth. It's how things actually are. And then so the so the Buddha used used the meditation to to examine to examine this body mind and and he came up with three things that he could say, this is how things actually are. And the first of these is that things change. Everything changes, everything is impermanent. It's obvious. We all, at some level, we all know that. And we, and we can tell ourselves, oh, it will change, it will change. And especially when something is unpleasant, we, we tell ourselves, okay, I'll just open to it and it'll change. Um, but, but to, 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 
to understand that, not through thought. Okay? He said, he said, it's not to be known through thought. Not to be known by thought. So how else can we know it? We can know it from actual experience. And we can know it from insight. So insight, I've spent a lot of time at one point looking up definitions of insight in dictionaries. And, um, and, and what I came up with as a, a kind of a composite kind of composite definition is insight is an intuitive knowing and, and, and this wording, all of the wording comes directly from different dictionaries. I've just strung it together. Insight is the intuitive knowing of the inner nature of things without thought. So the dictionary definitions is exactly what the Buddha meant by insight. It's this immediate understanding, this immediate knowing without thought, it's intuitive. And it's a knowing of the inner nature of things, kind of the, 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 the not obvious. You know, so when I look at, when I look at this, it looks, pretty solid and if I come back next year it'll probably still be here and and probably look pretty much exactly the same things many things look as if they're permanent and yet we know that at some point this is gonna you know the screws are gonna weaken and it's gonna break down and then it's gonna flop down and it's gonna have to have um, wires attached to it to hold it up and um, maybe it's going to get dropped at some point and be a little bent or a little dented or scratch on it. Uh, we know it's going to change. We don't know when or how or why, but we know it will change. And everything changes. Everything that we can see, touch, smell, hear, think about, taste, changes. We know our bodies change. We can, we can see that when we look in the mirror, when we look at old photographs of ourselves, we can see that body changes. I think we can certainly see by today that mind changes. Mind changes very frequently, very quickly. So we change, things change. And and to, to, to really deeply see this and feel this and know it as insight, we come to know that it can't be held onto. Nothing can be held onto because it will change and the harder we're trying to hold onto it, the more dukkha we experience. And to really know that, to really truly know that, brings, ah, okay, just release. And that release isn't something I do. It arises out of the insight. And so the Buddha called impermanence or change 
the first of three gateways to liberation, to the ending of dukkha. And the second, the second, the second of these three characteristics or qualities um, is, is also, it's labeled dukkha. And it means, it has a slightly different meaning to um, the way he defined it previously. And the way that I think about it is unreliability. Things have as a characteristic unreliability. And part of that is because they change. We can't rely on things. We can't depend on things over a period of time. Anything that we have, anything that we use, anything that we think of, as solid and as real as it may appear and may feel, it will change. And so we can't depend on it. And, and this is particularly important to understand in terms of what brings us peace and happiness and satisfaction in life. And if we look at the things that we generally turn to, things that we usually turn to, you know, so, so commonly, we turn to material things, we turn to drugs, alcohol, habits, we turn to other people, we turn to meditation. <laughs> and we look for something in these things that will give us everlasting peace and joy and happiness and bliss and all these wonderful things. And at some point, hopefully, we start to see, wait a minute, it doesn't work that way. You know, even the meditation, we can get to the most wonderful, blissful state of peace and calmness and tranquility and happiness and, and and equanimity and compassion and kindness and all these wonderful qualities. And we think, oh, this is it. Got it. And before we know it, it changes. We can't rely on it. And again, when we really get that, <laughs> when we really get that, and again, not through just thinking about it and, and having a kind of intellectual, academic understanding, but really getting it through, through insight. It's, ah, wow, can't rely on that. Okay. And um, a really important point with this is that this, this letting go, and I, and I think even, and I know some of you at least have, have experienced this, letting go does not mean the same thing as getting rid of. Okay? Letting go of something doesn't necessarily mean it goes away. It simply means there isn't the clinging, the grasping. Okay? Very important point. So when we use this term, letting go, when we say, oh, I just have to let go of this, am I really meaning let go, or am I meaning I want to get rid of it? 
And sometimes it's very subtle. The difference in the distinction can be very subtle. Subtle and hard to understand. So this, um, this unreliability is the second, the second gateway. And the third gateway is, is very much related to um, the aggregates fueled by clinging and the way that perception works and the way that the aggregates work. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult one. The Pali word, um, kind of unfortunately, I wish they had come up with a better term, the Pali word is anatta. And anatta literally translates as without self. And we commonly see it translated as no self, but it doesn't in fact mean no self. Um, no self would be a denial, a rejection of the fact that here's this body-mind. I call it me, but there is this body-mind. There is, there is a, a conventional self. And as, as Brad pointed out, um, talk, um, having a conventional self that can think and can plan and can remember is very functional. <laughs> it's very important for functioning in this world. What, what anatta actually means is that things exist without separate selfness. They exist without separate selfness. And it's, it's pointing at this, this interconnectedness and interdependence, the way that, that things arise because of conditions coming together. So if we look in terms of the, um, the aggregates fueled by clinging, so the clinging, as I, as I hope I explained, I tried to explain, the, the clinging, to a very large extent, arises out of the, the perception of separation, of separateness. So if I start to examine this mind-body and start to really pay attention to it, I can start to see how the, um, the body sensations are conditioned by the temperature in the room. Have you noticed that? Sometimes we come into this room and it's quite cool and we find ourselves putting on extra blankets and kind of cool. And a couple of times we come in and it's been much warmer and then it's oh. <laughs> And so, so, so the, the body and the mind also. So, so in fact, who I am is being conditioned from moment to moment by a simple thing like the temperature in the room. I don't exist separate from that. When that bird, when that sound vibration hits the ear and I hear that, it conditions who I am in that moment. Who I am in that moment is not separate from that bird. I exist dependent on that bird and that sound and that sound vibration and the hearing and that whole process. Who I am, this, this self, this thing I call self, 
is sitting here talking because you're sitting there listening. And I, I hope I wouldn't be talking <laughs> if it was just me here. <laughs> Maybe silently inside. <laughs> Who I am in this moment of sitting here is very intimately connected with and dependent on each of you. And each of you, who you are in this moment, is intimately connected with me and with each other. And we can take um, um, a less tangible thing like retreat. This retreat is conditioned by and dependent on each and every one of us being here. And it's dependent on the building and the people who built it and the people who maintain it and the managers and the cooks and the farmers who grow our food and the trucks that deliver our food. And, and it just goes on and on and on. And this moment would not exist without all of that. This is anatta. And to deeply understand this through insight, and the insight again, the insight coming from paying attention to this body and, and, and realizing all of these connections and all this interaction that's happening. This, 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 this insight, with this insight, with this, this knowing of this inner nature of things. And it's, it's inner because the appearance is that it's all separate. It's just a whole bunch of separate bits that happen to be here. But it's all intimately connected. And, and with this insight, we see that there really is no need to reach out and try to get. And we can't push things away. We can't get rid of. If we're trying to get rid of something, it proves that we're connected. If we're angry at someone, the fact that there's anger proves that there's a connection, there's a relationship. And with the understanding of this, again, there's, oh, what a relief. What a relief. I don't have to get and hold on to and push away and, and struggle. And, uh, uh. Whew. This is the ending of dukkha. And so we have these, these three gateways, these three entries, entrances into the, the release that ends the dukkha. When we give attention, when we give attention to um, to these contacts, to the consciousness and the contacts, we start to see or start to call into question how much of our contact with the world, how much of our 
interaction with the world, how much of yeah, how much of that is actually me doing something? When you're sitting and paying attention to the, the breathing and the sound comes, there's the hearing and and the the perception and all the aggregates come into play and then it's the sound out there and me here and then it becomes ah i heard that now when that sound arises are you doing anything to make that hearing happen huh just sitting here sitting here being attentive and all of a sudden beep 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 do you have to do anything to make that happen anyone my answer is no <laughs> i put the food in my mouth there's a taste and there's a a feeling of vedana do I have to do anything to make that taste happen? Mm -mm. I'm sitting with my eyes closed, paying attention, feeling the belly. Bell rings, open my eyes. Once the eyes are open, do I have to do anything to make that seeing happen? It all just happens because of the conditions. The conditions are right, and it happens. Natural process. Just like I don't have to do anything to make the breath come in and go out. I don't have to make do anything to make seeing arise, pass away. Hearing arise, pass away. Tasting, arise, pass away. It all happens in the conditions. And yet so easily and so quickly, we take ownership of all of this. And in that taking ownership of it and saying, I do it, this is the clinging to the five aggregates that fuels the dukkha. So this 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 understanding this understanding through insight the nature of self and the nature of things and these and these these gateways and these these processes of how dukkha arises giving attention to the giving attention to all of this and giving attention not through thinking about and analyzing it trying to figure it out but just through the process of being alert and awake and open and interested, and mindful, we begin to we begin to know all this. And through this knowing, ha, ah, just be. 
And then we can be doing in the being and be being in the doing. We don't have to separate them like we separate me from you or me from the bird. It's all interconnected. Great, great, great freedom in knowing that. And even greater freedom in living from that place of knowing. Maybe to, um, to test your understanding of impermanence. Try out, try out. What does it mean? What would it mean to really live my life from a place of knowing that everything I connect with and contact with is impermanent? So much of our life is based on assumptions of permanence and of continuity. Permanence and continuity of things, permanence and continuity of this image I have of who I am. Maybe try it sometime, Let's see. So I hope this I hope this is inspiring you to to continue with the practice to um, not to strive and struggle with it but um, the 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 Buddha gave a lift a list of qualities of heart and mind that he said are to be perfected and two of them I two of them I really find useful to remember, and they really go together. Um, one is persistence, and the other that goes along and balances it is patience. So we do our practice with persistence and patience. And we come to know liberation of mind and heart, and in that, in that liberation, in that liberation, in that ha, ah, and in that knowing of interconnectedness, of interdependence, there's no need for metta practice. There's no need for compassion practice because metta and compassion become the manifestation of that knowing. So we live with mindfulness and heartfulness. So let's sit together for a few minutes in silence, giving attention to this, this miracle of mind-body. Not mind and body, mind-body. And opening to the, to the miracle of, of knowing intimacy and connection.
May all beings open to the insight, the insights of how things actually are. May all beings know the heart's release from greed, hatred, and delusion. May all beings know true inner peace and freedom. 